afternoon. Welcome to our Wednesday night study that we usually do archaeology in the Bible, but we're doing one on the history of uh, B'nai Noah and the seven uh, laws of Noah. Last week, or we did not have a class last week. We had to go to the Alpine to the funeral of our dear friend Glenda Maston and uh, as we ended our study last week we were talking about the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and their descendants were B'nai Noah and under the Noahite covenant to the Hebrews of the Jacob clan were separated from the other nations at Mount Sinai. This separation of Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, from Am Olam, the peoples of the world, did not negate the Israelites from remaining Noahites, Noahites and subject to the seven laws of the first covenant. The Mosaic covenant did not replace the Noahide Covenant. The, the Sinai Covenant was given in tandem to the uh, Arak Covenant. Sinai did not replace Arathot. The Noahide laws are unrestricted and universal. No, pers no Jewish person exempt or bypassed from observing the seven Noahide laws. They are the foundation of the Sinai Code. In virtue, the 613 commandments are to the upside, not at all universal. They are, for most part, emphatically restricted to Israel. These judicial Sinai de de decrees are, in general, directed to the people of Israel. The exceptions are when the word a man Adam or Ish as we see in Deuteronomy 24.1 and Leviticus 1.2 if any man of you will bring an offering to the Lord these usually occur with a particular commandment that is corresponding to a Noahite law These restrictions extend further than just to the people of Israel. Inside that community, the 613 laws span tail out and dovetail in all directions. Some law apply only to men, while others apply solely to women. Certain apply only to kings, while others are directly and ex exclusively to the judges or the Sanhedrin in the system of jurisprudence. Some of the 613 map, uh, uh, commandments are strictly to the high priest, while different laws are only to the thousands of the common priest. Meanwhile, other of the 1613 commandments are addressed to the Levites. Nevertheless, within the Levite community, there are Levitical laws addressed to the sons of Merari, the sons of Goshen, and even more so to the sons of Kohath, who had the responsibility of moving the tabernacle. Even the prophet Balaam recognized that the Israelites were set apart from the other peoples. In Numbers chapter 23 and 9, Balaam said, From the top of the hills I see him. From the hills I behold him. Oh, this, lo, this people shall dwell alone and not be reckoned among the nations. The 613 commandments given solely to the Jacobson family, etched in sapphire stone, lie hidden away in the ark of God. 
Hitherto they remain with us today as windings around the spindle of the Taurus scroll. They seemingly send out loud and clear imperatives. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. Whereas in contrast to the seven Noahide laws are not so distinctly and dramatically listed in Israel's Torah. The Noahide laws are pre presented in an illusion drawn from the dynamics of, hum of primal human stories etched in flesh and blood in the drama of Adam and Eve and the tragedy of their violations. The tale of the snake antidote even dramatizes and acts out the verse 3 laws of Noah against blasphemy, idolatry, and theft. Yet it does not plainly say, Thou shalt not blaspheme. Thou shalt not idolize. Thou shalt not steal. <coughs> but we see that these illusions emerge from the tragedy of human experience. <coughs> the next thing we want to pose what was the mood and disposition when God gave the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai all the translations of the Ten Commandments fail to convey the tenor of the language in which they're written the Ten Commandments, so-called, which are actually 32 commandments, <coughs> appear to be given in sledgehammer commandments, thou shalt and thou shalt not. The Ten... Uh, we've got Noah somewhere over there. The tenor of these top ten come across in the harsh imperatives. Yet, in the Hebrew verb house, they do not occur in the imperative the al house, but rather in the soft, gentle, buoyant, almost pillow talk, <coughs> whispering tones in the al, or the call house of the verb. They're sort of they are in sort of a pillow talk intonations. Give me your ears, O Israel. So I may whisper, I am the Lord your God. Love me. Certainly you will have no other gods. Surely you will remember to guard my Sabbath and Halloween and so forth. Back to the tale of the state narrative, the connotations of Adam, Eve, and their own violations were etched not in sapphire stones, but rather in the souls and conscience. That still, small voice whispers the austere consequences of our primitive parents in their own transgressions. We were all embodied in Adam and Eve physically, spiritually, and psychologically. Adam and Eve remained hitherto embodied in us. It's not the question if I was there, or if we were there, for we were in actuality all there. In each of us, there is an Adam, an exile from the garden, in need of redemption. This tale of the snake, this minute, Genesis chapter 3, is the curse of the law. Only this single solitary section of the entire Torah is specified as the curse of the Torah. This snake, Eve, Adam, and even the ground and vegetation was cursed. In Paul's reference in Galatians 3.13 to the curse of the law is exclusively to this precise section of the tale of the snake in the Torah. Theologians, however, are totally ignorant of the Torah because they totally ignore the Torah. 
they're more ignorant of the, the Torah in particular because they even accordingly ignore the rabbinic commentary. They have taken this specific Pauline statement, the curse of the law, in Genesis chapter 3, and spread it like mayonnaise over the entire five books of Moses, and in fact, the entire Jewish scriptures, that they scathingly and sarcastically referred to as the Old Testament, implying that it is obsolescence, obsolete, and no longer effective. First of all, we want to define what Benenoach, what is Benenoach, and how is it different from Judaism. In Genesis chapter 9, in verse 9, and God made a covenant with Noah and his sons. That's where we get the word Benenoach meaning the children of Noah. In this very first covenant God made with mankind, it is a universal covenant and applicable to all mankind, including the Jewish people. But Noah is not something new. In reality, it is the oldest original covenant God made with man. In reality, it's not even religion. It is a universal social and moral code, obligatory of all mankind, the difference of race, color, creed, or ethnic origin. The seven laws of Noah are not a religion, nor is B'nai Noah a religion. B'nai Noah is not something you join. We're, we are all already children of Noah. That is what B'nai Noah means, the children of Noah. They transcend mere religion and even go beyond the norm of ethnic and religion, ethics and mores. The Noahite laws far supersede mere religion. They're universal and timeless. Their religious, ethnic, mores, the Noahide commandments far supersede mere religion. Most ancient laws and moral principles and human values state in some form the seven laws of Noah. For example, the Code of Hammurabi. embodies the seven Noahite laws. We are told that Hammurabi was contemporary with Abraham. They were both from the same time and region of Mesopotamia. The word Hammurabi is not a name. It is a title. Ha, the, Mare, teacher, Rabbi, or Rabbi, great. So Hammurabi means a great teaching rabbi. If this title was changed to a name in the article, hey, as in Hammurabi, dropped, it simply becomes Marei Rabbi. Invert the spelling of that name as the ancient mystics often did, and it becomes Ibrahim, the Arabic form of Abraham. So Hammurabi and Abraham were pronounced not only contemporary at the same time and region, but perhaps were indeed the very same person. Hammurabi is Abraham. Native Americans misnamed Indians. The Native American had a Noahide moral code much higher than the missionaries that called the Indians savages and came to convert them to Christianity. 
Native American culture and religion was a most superb example of the preservation of the seven Noahide laws. The American, Native Americans believe in one great spirit, the creator of all things, who indwells all creation, both organic and inorganic, both earthly and heavenly. In Adair's History of the American Indians, written in 1735, Adair shows the Hebraic and Judaic practices in their ceremonial customs and their ethnic and moral values and social con conduct. The greatest weakness was that they, that led to their final demise, was that they did not have, they had no concept of lying or swearing falsely. They believed that white men's words were true. These beautiful primitive people did not have a word for a lie. Due to their experience, they said, white man speaks with a forky tongue. This is an allusion back to the serpent, the snake story in the Garden of Eden. Adair even points out that the chanting of their ceremonial traditions the reciting of the tetragrammaton yud hey bav hey yo ho wah hey in various rhythms and meters show a very primal knowledge of the Hebrew unpronounceable name holy name of God of Israel however they never pronounced all four letters together they separated the incantations with na or me this, according to the Jewish tradition, sanctifies God's holy name and prevents the blasphemy by naming the name in vain. These Native Americans not only observed the seven laws of Noah, they had traditions and observance that were not given until Israel received the law at Mount Sinai. Whereas the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai is restricted only to the Jewish people, except for its addressing each a man or the word Adam. Then the, it is universal and applicable to the non-Jew also. <coughs> for example, in Leviticus chapter 2, the one in verse 2, if any man will bring an offering to the Lord, says any man. And in Deuteronomy chapter 21 and verse 4, he says that the, uh, if a man had taken a wife and married her, that we find that this law relates back to the seven laws of Noah. It almost sounds redundant. If a man had taken a wife and married her, however, we must realize that in that culture, sometimes a man would t buy a wife or be given a wife when she was only two or three years old. But he would not have consummate the marriage until she reached the age of puberty. So if a man had taken a wife and married her, it's not redundant. Generically, everyone is a descendant of Noah, or a son of Noah. We are all descendants of Noah. But in a rabbinic sense, only those who acknowledge that there is only one God and committed themselves to observe the seven laws of Noah or Noahites or Bethany Noah. The seven laws are found in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. They're not chiseled out in stone 
but emerged from the text in the tragedy of human suffering. And they are as follows. One, blasphemy. Two, idolatry. Three, against them. Four, against murder. Five, against illicit sex. Six, to establish courts of justice. And seven, not to eat the limb of a living animal. What the Christians call the Old Testament is not old to the Jewish people. The Jews refer to their scripture as a Tanakh. The word Tanakh is a contraction of Ta for Torah, Na for the Nabihim, the Hebrew word for prophets, and Cha for Ketuvim, the Hebrew word for writings. That is the Psalms, Proverbs, and the remaining of the Scripture. The Christian's Old Testament has 39 books, whereas the Tanakh has only 24. The content is the same, but the Jews reckon double books, first, such as 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, is one book. Andrew Jukes pointed out that there are six letters in the Hebrew alphabet that have double letters that correspond to the six double books of the Hebrew Bible. The name of these the, the name of the these books in the Christian Bible were based on the Greek Septuagint translation, whereas the names of the Jewish books are based on the first word uh, in the text. Genesis, for example, is called Bereshit because the first word in Genesis 1-1 is Bereshit, translated in the beginning. The first word in Exodus is Shemot, translated, these are the names. So the Hebrew name for what we call Exodus is Shemot. The first word of Leviticus is Vayikra, which is that he called. The first word of number is Bamidbar, meaning in the desert. The first words in Deuteronomy, Devarim. These are the words. So calls the name of all the books of the Hebrew Tanakh. Isaiah got its name Isaiah because he's the first one mentioned in the book. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah is called Jeremiah because uh, the first name in the book is Yerubiahu. Moses made three trips up to Mount Sinai and remained for 40 days and 40 nights. Moses received both the entire written law and the oral law. It took 40 years for Israel to act out what Moses had received on Mount Sinai. That's why Moses took everything that was done against him so calmly. He had already read, read and written how the story was going to end. In the end of Deuteronomy, we find a prophecy concerning the regathering of, this, of Israel from the great diaspora. So it took 40 centuries to act out this prophecy. 40 days and nights, 40 years, and 40 centuries. Uh, the dynamics of the prophetic book of Torah. The Holy Torah is wound around a spindle. The unrolling of the Torah is the unrolling of the scroll of time in world history. Here in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. Remember the former things of old. For I am the Lord, there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient times things that have not yet been done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. 
Moses and Zee both are written in lower, uh, oral law on Mount Sinai. It says that Moses gave the Torah to Joshua. That is the written Torah. And Moses rehearsed all the words of the Torah in the ears of Joshua. That is the oral Torah. Likewise, Joshua gave the Torah to the elders of Israel, the Sanhedrin. That's a written Torah. And rehearsed in their ears all the words of the Torah. That was the oral Torah. <coughs> so, the, or the oral Torah is called the Mishnah which means a second. That is, the written Torah is first, and the mission is a second. Joshua and the elders of Israel didactic the oral Torah into writing. One cannot understand the Torah without the Mishnah. God commanded Israel to make a mezuzah, and a tzitzit, and a feeling, but the Torah does not tell how to make them. The mission tells how they are to be made. In the second century of the common era, or error, as I call it, Rabbi Akiba and his student, Yehuda Hanasi, Judah the Prince, codified the oral law of the sixth tractates called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was produced by applying the seven laws of Hillel to a selected text. The second level is the 13 laws of Rabbi Ishmael. They were applied to the same text and produced the Gomorrah. The Mishnah and the Gomorrah together produced 66 tractates of the Talmud. The Talmud does not teach by parables, it teaches by illustrious stories. They are factual drawn on the text of the Tanakh. Rabbi, the 32 laws of Rabbi Gamaliel applied to a selected text produces the Midrashi. The Hebrew word Midrash means from the thrashing. For example, if you take a, a head of wheat and hold it in your hand and rub it, and extract the grain, you have drashed. And that's what the word midrash means. While the Mid Mishnah and the Gomorrah deal only with selected texts, the midrashim never deals with selected texts. They teach it by parables outside the selected texts. When Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his sons hid from the Romans in the cave of the Kinnim, 13 years, every day the prophet Elijah appeared to Rabbi Ben Yochai and told him to write these words. This revelation is known as the Zohar. When the 42 laws of Rabbi Luria, some of Laws, some authority say 47, are applied to a select, selected text. It produces the Zohar. The Zohar was never understood until Rabbi Luri of Safat broke the code to the understanding of the Zohar. He, Rabbi Luria was called the Ari, the lion. So we have four levels of interpretation of the Torah. There are the Mishnah, the Bor, the Midrash, and the Zohar. These four levels are referred to as the Pardis, meaning the archer. The P is for shot, meaning simple. The R is for remis, meaning hint. The D is for the drush, meaning the thrash. The S is for sowed meaning the secret. The mission is Peshat or simple, the Gomorrah is Remus or Hint, the 
Midrashim means to thrash. And so it means secret. Thus, we derive the word pardis. <coughs> if a, a person goes through the first three levels, <coughs> but neglects the fourth, the soda, the secret level, he is only P-R-D, parried, which is a mule. A mule is a cross between a jackass and a mare, mare, but it fully stops there. A female mule is called a jenny. She cannot conceive. The spit little corner philosopher Uncle Josh Billings, pen name for George Bernard Shaw, in his essay on the mule wrote, the mule is the only animal on earth that can be totally extinct and then be recreated. The halakha, lech, means to, to walk. The halakha is the walk or the conduct. This is a book that defines how a Jew should conduct himself in given situations. Rabbi Yoel Schwartz was commissioned by Chief Rabbi Mordecai, Mordecai Eliyahu to write the halakha for B'nai Noah. Do you have any questions? Okay. Now that's the conclusion of lesson one. We'll now, now go to lesson two, which is Berkat Hashem. Do not utter God's name in vain. Curse God or pursue the occult. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. The first Noahite law is against blasphemy. As a snake first skeptically questioned the authority of God's word, the snake said, Yay! Yet God said, and Second, the snake blatantly denied his the Torah said, you will not surely die. Casting doubt or raising skeptical questions against the Torah injures and punctures or punctures the name of God. Denying the divine authority and origin of the Torah from Mount Sinai or saying that the Torah is obsolete or abrogated as the replacement theologians teach or teach that the Torah is a forgery as in the Muslims, all of this is blasphemy. Anyone who says you cannot take the Bible literally says exactly what the snake said to Eve. Anyone who says such is a blasphemer. The I had an experience when I was in seminary. This professor was ridiculing one of the students for interpreting the Bible literally. He said, surely you've been in my class four years and you still won't take that literally? You cannot take that literally. The Bible cannot be interpreted as surely there's no one else in this room that takes the Bible literally. And I raised my hand. I said, Dr. Summers, you've used the word surely about a half a dozen times. And I hear an echo going all the way back to Eden when the snake said, Thou shalt not surely die. You don't take that literally, do you, Eve? And the whole class broke into applause and amens. And the professor was so angry, he just dismissed the class. And the Christian scriptures in Revelation 2, 9. I know the blasphemy of them who say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. In the next 
chapter, chapter 3 and verse 9. I will make them of the synagogue of Satan who say that are, they are Jews and are not, but do lie. To claim to be Jewish when one does not have a Jewish mother or has gone through the process of orthodox conversion is a blasphemer. According to the Nazarene, one who claims to be a Jew and is not a Jew <coughs> is not a Messianic Jew, but rather a lie. <coughs> and I'm going to have to spell this for M-E-S-S-Y, messy, satanic, blasphemy Jew. Such liars are, in fact, that they really believe their own lies. One overcomes blasphemy of the setting of the Torah and being in awe of Hashem and blessing His holy name. In other words, all of the laws were giving in the negative. What you have to do is make them a positive. When it says not to blaspheme, then we overcome that by studying the Torah and blessing His holy name and not calling His name but referring to Him as Hashem, the name. When we're talking about Him, but when we're praying to him, referring to him as Adonai, my master, or Adonainu, our master. But talking about him, we we refer to him as Hashem. The law against blasphemy. Most people think that blasphemy is cursing God or using God's name in vain. This is profanity but it's not blasphemy. In the sense of Noahite laws, profanity reflects a person's lack of education and inability to express himself properly. Profanity is vulgar speech and unbecoming sacrilegious and offensive to the cultured and educated and God-conscious public. Blasphemy in the Noahite laws is the articulation and enunciation of the unpronounceable name of God, Yudhevavay. The pronunciation of that ineffable name is only known by a select few. In fact, 35 people that actually know that name. Only they know the name, and only they can transgress that prophecy painting the name of God. But we are forbidden as Noites to profane the name of God in any language. We are prohibited to enunciate the name of a, of a God, something that's believed to be a God. That's why in the Bible, the Torah, it refers to Pharaoh, but it doesn't tell his name. Pharaoh was office, but the name of the Pharaoh was not given because people worship. The Egyptians worship Pharaoh. And the same thing is found in the New Testament when, the, when we see the... Uh, word uh, Caesar he used this not give the name of Caesar the Caesar because they were worried there are a couple of exceptions to this in the New Testament text that identify like Caesar Augustus or but most of the time it just refers to the title Caesar you have to do a lot of study to figure out what Caesar is talking about. The second stage of blasphemy is to question the integrity or authority of God, the Word of God or the Torah. This only applies to the Torah or the five books of Moses. 
called the law, or when God is speaking, and the snake said, Yea, if God said, that sneering word, yea, is filled with scorn and skepticism, a cynical sneer to the reproach of the authority of the Torah had been spoken. One who has educated the culture, who never used a profane word, yet who is cynical and skeptical toward the validity of the Torah, or the law is greater blasphemer than a shipload of profane cursing sailors. The Hebrew for yay is of key. Music, know how beautiful it's composed. Played or sung off key is contemptible. The second stage of blasphemy is an added, a simple attitude to disdain and discord toward the divine authority of the Torah. The third stage of blasphemy proceeds with an attitude and action toward the Torah, a blatant denial of the validity of the Torah, as it were the true word of God. In Genesis 3, 3, the snake said, You will not surely die. That is to say, Surely you don't take God's word literally. Blasphemers all loudly say that the Bible cannot be taken literally. The late David L. Cooper in his Golden Rule of Interpretation wrote, When the plain sense of the Scripture make common sense, Seek no other sense. Therefore, take every word in its plain, ordinary, normal, usual meaning. Do not try to give a double or spiritual meaning to express the stated text. If one cannot take the written word as such, then who is the authority to say what is literal and what is spiritual? So, we take the Bible literally in the plain, ordinary, normal, usual meaning of the word. Those who tell us the scripture cannot be taken in the literal sense or try to give another sense to meaning is a simple definition of the third stage of blasphemy. <coughs> Anyone who says that the Torah has been abrogated, abolished, done away with, replaced, or fulfilled by anything is a blasphemer.
we have witnessed this in our American society, society since Lyndon B. Johnson's great society in the early 60s. God was expelled from the public education system by a single effort of the atheist Madly Murano Hare. It was later revealed that the USSR financed Mrs. O'Hare. After God was expelled from the educational system, he was soon expelled from our entire quote, politically correct society. The sixth Noahite law is to establish the courts of justice. This is the only one of the seven laws of the Noah that appears to be a positive commandment. Yet when we study the details of this commandment, we find all the specifics are the negative against judges, lawyers, police system as related to the prohibitions that restrict their powers that may, they may abuse the public. The seventh law of Noah is against eating the limb of a living animal. This is the only commandment that was given to Noah. The first six commandments were given to Adam, and only the seventh given to Noah, because only after the flood was man permitted, not just permitted, but commanded to eat meat. I want to put in the plug here that the, does not uh, permit man to eat meat, but it commands him to eat meat. But there is a proper way to slay animals so that it'll be painless. This uh, we find as we see how the the rabbis, the shokin, slaughter their animals. I had the good fortune when I was nine years old to go to work in a slaughterhouse. <coughs> and the man that did the slaughtering I told my mother he sure is strange he wears two hats one a cap to work in and the other he's got on a beanie I did not realize for years that Max was a orthodox Jew shokit and when he this was during the uh, second war and he had fled Europe He finally got a job in Chicago, so he told the uh, man that owned the slaughterhouse to let me do the slaughtering because the black man would shoot or knock an animal in the head. But to kill a, a bee, according to Kashrut, you take your left hand and put it around the windpipe. And the carotid artery runs along the top of that windpipe. And you press this and cut off the blood flow to the brain until it throbs three times. And then with one stroke, you cut the throat, the windpipe and the carotid artery in one stroke. So the animal is sort of brain dead. And uh, because no uh, blood had been able to get to his brain. And then, in this matter, the Noahide laws of, of Kashrut are more strict than the Jewish laws. Because when a, the, the carotid artery is cut, they start dressing the animal out, skinning it, and so forth. Under the Noahite law, you cannot start processing the animal until it is nerve dead. And old Max, knowing that he was slaughtering for Gentiles, when the animal stopped moving, 
he would take uh, a sharp knife and prick around where the hoof attaches to the uh, to the leg. And if the if the if the hair moved, it was not nerved then. And only when you could prick and the hair did not move, according to the Noahite laws, that is when we can we can begin the process of, of skinning and butchering the animal, not until it's nerve dead. Where under Jewish law it just has to be brain dead. So that concludes our study. I think I've got about six minutes left according to my time, but this brings us to an end of our study of uh, for today. Do we have any questions? No questions? Okay, we'll look forward to seeing you Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock for our Torah study continuing in the book of Exodus about the tabernacle. Also want to remind you about the uh, the tour that we're doing in November. And if you can check our website and get information on that or we'll send you a brochure. And we have the conference. Anita, when's it coming up? October 12th through the 14th. October 12th, 13th, and 14th. We're having our annual conference. And uh, James Tabor will be here and be showing the, the full unedited uh, version of finding the tomb in Tapio containing the ossuaries holding the bones of Mary and Joseph and Jesus, Mary Magdalene, his wife, and their son Yehuda. So he'll have that. That's going to be, I think, a highlight for this conference. And we'll have several other speakers we'll be announcing later. God bless you, and we'll look forward to meeting with you Sunday afternoon.